think we all know the pedigree of the Cornell Lab of Ornithology when it comes to bird resources, and we at the ABA are excited to partner with the Cornell Lab of O to offer an amazing deal exclusive to ABA members. ABA members can now get a 15% discount to any new subscription to Cornell's amazing new Birds of the World resource that is applicable for three years. Birds of the World is a powerful resource that brings deep scholarly content from four celebrated works of ornithology into a single platform where birders can answer all their life history questions for every species of bird they could want. It is extraordinary. You can get more information at birdsoftheworld.org. Hello and welcome to the American Birding Podcast from the American Birding Association. I am your host, Nate Swick, and I am extremely sorry to report that the birding, at least in my part of the world, starting to slow down. I had my first walk the other day in which I had zero migrants, all local breeders. And to be honest, that realization was a little sad, as it always is. But I know that those of you to the north are still seeing some birds moving through. Know that I am jealous. But the bell, the bell tolls for thee as well, folks. Now we get to see whether this birding thing, this pandemic-induced extreme hobbying, is for real. Once the grosbeaks and orioles have moved on, will we still see New York Times editors clamoring for 700-word essays about the eight tools you need for backyard birding? Once all we have left are bald cardinals, will we still see the features on CBS this morning about backyard birding? This is the real test. For what it's worth... Both of those things, both of those news items, those media, that media attention, those are very exciting. CBS even made the recent three billion birds lost news part of the the feature that they did. And truly, you know, the more bird friendly people we can make aware of that sort of thing is great. I'll also note that the CBS piece also featured recent guest Jennifer Ackerman. So it appears that we scooped CBS. I'm just saying. But worry not, new birders and new podcast listeners, of which there are many if our download stats are to be believed. Shorebirds will be heading back south in about a month, and that will be the real test, assuming people are willing and able to travel to their nearest mudflat. I kid, of course. Fall migration is better than spring migration. I will fight you on this. Not only are there three times as many birds, but they linger. Fall migration lasts like six months, so there's no feeling like you missed it if you couldn't get out the door for those two really big spring mornings. But I am getting ahead of myself, looking forward to the next big bird exodus, having barely seen the tail end of the latest. That's birding for you. Always something to look forward to. On the show today, I'm going to talk a little bit about my yard squad, the birding competition that I have been in on that has kept me going these weeks of spring quarantine. But first... Let us sing the praises of the modest rock pigeon, one of the birding world's great survivors. And as researcher Elizabeth Carlin discovered the perfect species for studying evolution in an urban environment, she joins me to talk about the surprising diversity of city pigeons after this week's Rare Birds. This is your Rare Bird Focus for the second week of May 2020. For the second straight week, Arizona is where it is at 
for rare birds as multiple ABA code 4 flame-colored tanagers were seen in Miller Canyon in Cochise County, along with the continuing crescent-chested warblers and a barreling hummingbird coming to a feeder in neighboring Santa Cruz County. But that wasn't the only cool bird in Arizona this week. The state's second black turnstone was a one-day wonder in Yuma County, and the code 4 common crane which has spent time in Coconino County for the last couple weeks, was seen again uh, for 2020. And to be honest, I just wanted to put a lot of Arizona birds in there so I could say the name of the counties, Yuma and Coconino. One first record to report, a great kiskadee was photographed at a bird bath in Gage County, Nebraska, just north of the Kansas border. That fills in the gap a little bit between kiskadee records in Kansas and South Dakota, both of which have come from the last decade. And that's all I got for you this week. If you want to see all the rare bird records, including those I skipped over, head to the ABA Rare Bird Alert Hub on our website. You can find that at aba.org RBA. I have something new every Friday morning there. You can also join our ABA Rare Bird Alert Facebook group at facebook.com groups slash ABA Rare or check out our Twitter feed at ABA Bird Alert. Perhaps more than ever, birdies are turning their attention to birds immediately outside their front door. And for millions of North Americans, there's scarcely a more ubiquitous bird than the feral rock pigeon. In fact, the humble rock pigeon allows for some interesting insights into evolution and the urban environment. And that is the work of my guest, Elizabeth Carlin. She's a PhD candidate at Fordham University in New York City and the author of a recent article in Evolutionary Applications that looks at genetic connectivity of rock pigeons in various cities in the Northeast U.S. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. When you were thinking about going into a career in wildlife biology, were rock pigeons on your radar as a potential study species? I think they've always kind of been on my radar. I honestly really wanted to work on mammals. All my training has been with mammals up until now. And Mm -hmm. when I got to my lab... All the all the good animals were taken. So my <laughs> my lab mates were working on mice and rats and coyotes. Yeah, this classic urban wildlife. Classic urban wildlife. And I kind of looked around and said, we could add another mammal to this system. But what would be really interesting is if we're trying to make like draw general conclusions about how urbanization influences wildlife, we mm-hmm. really need to add a bird. And so yeah. A bird that kind of is the most common, exactly what you think of when you think of urban, totally. is the pigeon. And that's how I kind of ended up there. I didn't really, I hadn't really thought a lot about pigeons up until I had to choose my PhD project. Mm-hmm. They just kind of seemed like that perfect animal to answer the questions that I had. Yeah. And there's some interesting questions that are sort of pigeon specific too, because dispersal is obviously a huge thing. With rock pigeons, and pigeons in general, I mean, they're amazing dispersers. I mean, uh, like all these South Pacific islands have their own pigeon because the pigeons just took off from another one and just didn't stop until they got land. So they can really move. They're strong flyers. And uh, that's different than, you know, rats or mice or whatever. Right. There's this complex history of, of pigeons in cities, especially in North America. Pigeons are not native to North America. They were brought over here mm-hmm. when Westerners started colonizing the United States. And so we have this complex history of these feral introductions. People continue to introduce pigeons to North America because they're breeding them for fancy traits. So feathered yeah, feet, totally. 
a head crest, really interesting colored <laughs> eyes. They're also breeding them for racing ability. And so it's, it's, a, it's a very complex system of traits that are coming into this, this wildlife. Mm-hmm. Your study that you recently published is, is really interesting. What is the sort of back of the napkin version of what you did and what you found? So I traveled between Boston and Washington, D.C., uh, metro area, and looked at and caught pigeons and looked at how mm-hmm. they're all genetically connected or different. Yeah. And my lab, the lab that I'm in right now, is really interested in population genetics and how urbanization shapes population genetics of different organisms. And so from Boston to Washington, D.C., I made multiple trips to the major cities up and down this coast and collected collected pigeons. I would drive around each city and and look for pigeons and talk to to local people about where they had seen pigeons. And then once I collected the pigeons, I would take a little bit of uh, blood from them and release the bird back into the wild. And that blood would then travel back with me to my lab where I extracted DNA. Mm -hmm. And from that DNA, I was able to determine how the different pigeons are related to each other in these different cities. And the big overall takeaway that I found out was that Mm -hmm. Boston pigeons, Boston and Providence pigeons are clustering out as a separate group from Mm -hmm. New York pigeons and all the way down to Washington, D.C., So something weird is happening across Connecticut where there's some kind of potential barrier maybe that's that is pigeon pigeon wasteland pigeon wasteland uh, (laughs) across Connecticut. And that was super surprising to me. I kind of thought, well, what I kind of expected was maybe each city would have its own pigeon population, because why Mm -hmm. would you move if you have food and you have shelter and you have mates, there's no real reason to disperse out of an area. Yeah. Uh, You know, Bostonians and New Yorkers have always kind of famously not gotten along. Maybe there's something going on with the pigeons as well. (laughs) Maybe. I feel bad. (laughs) Little little Red Sox pigeons and Yankees pigeons, and they don't want to interact with each other. It's it's a deeper thing than (laughs) just genetics. (laughs) I feel my best friend lives in Boston, and so Mm -hmm. and I I always feel bad about this rivalry between our cities. Uh, (laughs) I think she would definitely say that Boston pigeons are better, and I would definitely go for New York pigeons are better. (laughs) But it's it's this it's this interesting thing and kind of trying to think about what is happening in Connecticut that yeah. might be preventing pigeons from moving across this space yeah is it too suburban you know pigeons i don't know i yeah i see pigeons everywhere so you know they're as common in urban areas and like these real tall buildings and they like you know they'll be in kind of rural areas near silos where they can get feed or under and nesting under you know overpasses so i mean i don't necessarily notice there's a lot going on difference between city pigeons and country pigeons (laughs) Uh, but apparently there is like they don't I can't really think offhand what was going on in Connecticut that would cause them to separate, but that's that's such a really interesting uh, insight into 
northeastern pigeons? Yeah, I think that it might be suburban. That mm-hmm. we typically don't see pigeons in suburban areas. Yeah, that's true. And one of the things that I first noticed when I was doing my research is I I had gone into this project being like, pigeons are going to be so easy. They're everywhere. They're mm-hmm. going to be so easy to collect. And I started looking around and noticing a lot of places where there weren't pigeons. Yeah. Even within New York City. And I kind of look and be like, well there should be pigeons here. This seems like perfectly suitable habitat. So what's going on? Why are they not here? Especially as I would go out onto into parts of Queens and Long Island where it was more suburban, I really started to notice this lack of pigeons. And Mm. so kind of thinking about that. And then when I would go to Connecticut to try to collect pigeons, I was really fascinated by the fact that a lot of these smaller cities like New Haven and Stanford just didn't have the large pigeon populations that I would have expected. That's really interesting. And I think part of that might be due to the suburbs. The other thing that we tend to think about is whenever I would go into a new city and start talking to people about where the pigeons were, they'd always (laughs) go to the park, go to the park. Mm -hmm. And my experience had told me that it's very dependent on the park, someplace yeah. like Central Park that has lots of people is going to have lots of pigeons. But if I went to some of these parks in other cities where there weren't a lot of people in the parks, I didn't huh. see the pigeons. Yeah. It became this kind of guessing game of playing, uh, looking at my phone and looking at, okay, there's like a mall here. There's right. probably pigeons yeah. there. Or this looks like a really popular place where people go and hang out. So I should go look there for pigeons. Yeah. So rock pigeons are sort of famously really variable in their plumage. Was there any like noticeable difference in plumage types between the pigeons in one city versus another, like perhaps more of one variation in one place and less in another? I never noticed that. I noticed Mm -hmm. really interesting plumage everywhere. And it's one of the most interesting kind of things about pigeons is I think we always kind of think of them as pretty bland, that typical blue bar with right. gray and the two dark bars across their wing. And when you really start to look at them, you get to notice these differences. They'll have mm-hmm. maybe a pink eye instead of an orange or yellow eye. Sometimes they'll have an all black eye. They'll have feathered feet occasionally. And their toenails will be different colors. Sometimes they'll have really? black huh. toenails and sometimes they'll have white toenails and some. Sometimes they'll have a combination of both black and white toenails on the same foot. There's all these really interesting color traits that are in there. But I think in general, what's happening is because there's constant reintroductions from the fancy pigeon population, (laughs) we're, we're seeing those traits constantly coming into the feral population. Oh, that's interesting. You know, with this information, do you think that you could make some assumptions about rock pigeon populations in other city clusters but that you know that's acknowledging that this sort of acela corridor from you know boston to dc is really kind of a perfect place to do this kind of research yeah i kind of lucked out in where i ended up doing my phd i think it would be really interesting to expand the study west and south of Mm -hmm. here um outside of the megacity and maybe kind of looking around these other 
other kind of mega cities in Northern California, you have the Bay yeah, area yeah. that's kind of connected to Sacramento in Southern California, you have this mega city that's San Diego and Los Angeles. And so looking at those, looking at the Chicago area, figuring out if these patterns persist because most of the United States is very rural or suburban. And I'd really like to see if this Connecticut pattern of suburbanization really kind of tampering down the pigeon population is holds true other places. And one of, one of those things that I've been seeing, you know, of course, I can't travel anywhere now and not look for pigeons. It's just (laughs) an unfortunate thing that has happened. And I was in St. Louis last October and really noticed kind of the lack of pigeons in a lot of the areas. Mm -hmm. It it was quite surprising to me that I didn't see pigeons as frequently as I thought I would. Huh. That is interesting. It is, you know, St. Louis doesn't have a lot of other cities around it too. And um, it's also one of those kind of rust belt cities that, you know, maybe 75, 100 years ago was really bustling. And now the population is maybe half of what it was. And so with fewer people, it makes sense that there would be, you know, fewer pigeons, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it tends to be more sprawl. So it, yeah, it is very sprawly. It's one of those cities that goes out instead of going up. So New York Mm -hmm. is so limited in our space that we, we build up. And Mm -hmm. instead of building out. And so it could be have to do with some of those traits of the city. Yeah. Yeah. You talked about your your colleagues doing work with other other urban wildlife. Um, How does this rock pigeon study sort of connect to what mammals are perhaps doing? Do you see similar patterns? So we haven't looked, my lab mates haven't looked at large at this large of a scale i'm the first one to in the lab to be looking at this this huge scale and that makes sense because i'm working on a bird that can easily disperse it's very ubiquitous yeah it's probably easier to find pigeons than coyotes right right and they're very capable of moving these long distances pretty easily Mm -hmm. whereas i have a lab mate that's working on rats he focused on the island of manhattan and found this Mm -hmm. kind of uptown downtown population with a split across midtown and in kind of a similar way midtown tends to be less inhabited by people yeah and so he's thinking that there might be something along those lines a mini Connecticut around Central yeah, Park. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, where where you kind of have that same thing, where human populations are really structuring how the wildlife population, uh, where it where they're dispersed, where they are, and very interconnected with the human population. Yeah. So the New York Times called you the pigeon stalker. They did. Um, they did. <laughs> how do you catch a pigeon? Because it feels like it would be easy. But they're extremely wary. They are. And it's this thing where I think they must know I'm coming because (laughs) there have been times when I'll throw down food and they will just fly away. Um, (laughs) But so when I first started, I, I bought these traps. I talked to some people that worked on pigeons in Utah, and they suggested that I buy pigeon traps. Mm hmm. And so I bought these pigeon traps and I was like, this is going to be great. I'm going to attach it to my car. I'm going to be the pigeon mobile (laughs) and I can just drive to an area and the pigeons will walk into my trap. And after spending a couple days doing that and not having any luck, I realized that that was not going to work. 
Right. And I somehow came across a net gun. I cannot remember at this point if someone told me about it or if I just Googled a lot of how to catch pigeons. (laughs) But I I came across a, a tool called a net gun, which just shoots a net out over whatever wildlife. So it can mm-hmm. be used for wildlife capture kind of, of of any small to medium-sized animal. Yeah, I've seen them used for uh, shorebirds. Like right. you can just shoot them out over a flock of shorebirds. Yeah. Right. And so it's a CO2 powered tool that looks kind of like a big flashlight and where the flashlight where the actual light bulb would be is this net head where the net is all compressed inside and aligned with weights. Mm -hmm. And so I would spot some pigeons. I'd drive around, spot some pigeons and park and get out my net gun and get some food and throw down some food. And if I was lucky, the pigeons would kind of cluster together. And then I would shoot this net gun out over them. (laughs) And it's, it's one shot. So there it's not, you better get it right. You better get it right. It's not easy to reload. If you miss, you have to kind of reset everything and there's a good chance that the pigeons have flown away. I was going to say, like, the pigeons realize what's going on after the first time and, uh, like, it's hard to get them back? Sometimes. It depends on how much they want that food. So (laughs) certain sometimes they would, I would throw down food, I would try to shoot them, I would miss, and then I would uh, not be able to get them back. Other times... It was such a huge flock and the food would disappear so quickly that I was able to catch at that same flock multiple times mm-hmm. that, in that one location. And I could catch anywhere from zero, because I missed, to up to 16 pigeons in my oh, wow. foot net. Yeah. How did, what was it like using that sort of, you know, very, you know, it's, it's a pretty typical wildlife biology tool, but what was it like using that? in a city? Did you get a lot of weird looks? Was it the sort of thing that people would, uh, or, or is New York like so immune to that sort of, sort of thing that, um, you know, you weren't given a second glance? Yeah. New Yorkers tend to mind their own business. And so (laughs) (laughs) in classic New York fashion, I would see people kind of look at me and then just keep walking. (laughs) And I actually often invited them over because I think it's not often that you get to see people doing science in your city and asking yeah. questions. And I feel that it's my responsibility as a scientist, as a scientist that works in urban areas, as a scientist mm-hmm. that is a guest in many of these places because they're not my neighborhood, mm-hmm. that I need to open up my science to the people uh, that that live there. And so... Yeah. I, I, if I saw them looking at me, I would always invite them over say, Hey, come here. I'm, I'm a scientist. I'm studying evolution. I'm looking at pigeons. Come here. Have you ever seen a pigeon up close? And there was a whole range of attitudes from, Oh no, I'm scared of pigeons. I'm scared of birds. (laughs) That's totally gross to, wow, this is so cool. I've never seen wildlife like this up close. Yeah. And I, you know, I do want to acknowledge that I am a white woman that drives a Subaru. And so the my safety in terms of cops coming after me, I had more cops kind of approach me and just be like, what you doing there? This looks really cool. Uh, never, never kind of got stopped by cops. Um, and they always just kind of assumed that I should be there. I think oftentimes, too, that yellow safety vest that I would wear 
when I was out catching really helped. Uh, it's like an invisibility cloak, right? Yeah. You just kind yeah. of blend in like, oh, this is how you're obviously supposed to be here. This is something official. Yeah. Right. right. <laughs> I talk to a lot of cops. I would always, if I saw a police officer in an area that I was about to catch pigeons in, I would always stop and kind of approach them with my hands out and say, Hey, I just want to let you know that this is what I'm going to be doing. It's going to sound kind of similar to a gunshot. It's not, I'm just a crazy (laughs) wildlife biologist that wants to catch these pigeons. And they would usually chuckle quite a bit and say, why, why would you want to catch pigeons? And yeah. you're never going to be able to catch them. They yeah. often have very little faith in my ability. Yeah, this is the sort of thing that is so absurd that people are going to pretty much take you at your word. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> and I had some great conversations with people just as they came over and started to learn about about this wildlife. I also got told by quite a few people that pigeons are going to give me rabies, which is not true. <laughs> rabies is not vectored by birds. And yeah. so yeah. there was no way that I was going to get rabies from a pigeon. But I think that's a common kind of misconception that these pigeons yeah. are very dirty. Yeah, I was just going to say, like, there are a lot of misconceptions. And, and the fact that pigeons are dirty is, is one of them. Did you find them to be... Yeah, I don't know, dirtier than anything else that you've worked with? No, not at all, actually. And birds are usually pretty clean. They're pretty clean. You know, they do have some lice on them occasionally. Mm -hmm. And but because the lice are specific to feathers, and I don't have feathers because I'm Mm -hmm. a mammal, the lice would just kind of fall off of me. They they really couldn't attach to me. Yeah. And Um, occasionally they would have string around their feet. And whenever I could, I would cut that string off to kind of make sure it wasn't amputating any of their toes. But that seems to be more a condition of humans, you know, leaving bits of string, or oftentimes it was actually synthetic hair from like a, a plastic wig that would be wrapped around the pigeon's foot, amputating some of the toes. Yeah. Do you have a greater appreciation for rock pigeons now? Uh, than you did before you started? Absolutely. I think they're really cool animals. And I I know the birding community often is like, oh, I don't want to see a pigeon. (laughs) Like they they don't even add them to their their life list. I know, I know. (laughs) But they're beautiful when you watch them fly. The way they're able to maneuver and navigate is gorgeous. And I think there's something quite exciting about a bird that is this hardy. That is really able to thrive in these urban environments. And they always kind of make me chuckle where they're so integrated into our city life that whether people love them or hate them, even if they hate them, I think they would be sad if they disappeared from cities. Yeah. Yeah. It is a nice sign of life in a place where you would imagine that there isn't a lot of that. Right. You know, it is wildlife, even though they are introduced and they are ubiquitous and they, you know, do you know, like little piranhas around a piece of bread or trash or whatever, but that it, it is wildlife in a place where you don't necessarily expect wildlife to be, which is a neat thing. Right, right. And for a lot of New Yorkers, there's some of the few wildlife that we actually get to interact with on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. And it's something that I can see out my window. They hang out on my fire escape. And I always feel like I'm cheating in a little way and my and my PhD, because I can basically go anywhere 
and be like, oh, yeah, this is part of my research. You know, walking home from a bar at 1 a.m. and seeing pigeons out Mm -hmm. feeding and going, huh, that's weird. Why are they out at night? Is it that there's so much light pollution that they can feed? Are they avoiding Mm. the hawks that are out during the day? What's what's going on here? Yeah. Classic scientist behavior coming home from a bar and immediately coming up with research questions on your way home. Absolutely. Absolutely. (laughs) Elizabeth Carlin is the pigeon stalker, at least according to the New York Times. Really good uh, superhero alter ego, if you ever want to use that that way. Um, Her paper is available in the open access journal Evolutionary Applications. You can find more of her work on her blog, Life in the City. All those links will be in the show notes. Thank you so much for chatting with me, Elizabeth. Thank you so much for having me. This spring has been full of disappointments. Canceled festivals, closed parks, limited travel. I haven't even visited the birding hotspots in my home county, let alone my state. We have a really great park here in Greensboro with a short loop that is a a warbler magnet. I haven't been there this spring. So to say back in March when COVID-19 really began to bite that I did not have high hopes for this spring was a bit of an understatement. So enter Matt Smith and fantasy birding to turn things around. I talked to Matt on the podcast last year. You can go back and listen if you like. It's episode 0316. And while I'm always a fan of people who do interesting things with birding and bird data, the actual fantasy aspect of the game he created didn't really connect with me. Just as well, I'm terrible at other fantasy sports too. I have my rooting interests. I don't like having to root against my teams to get made up points. Uh, Fantasy birding felt a little like that to me. No shade to people who love it. Not here to yuck your yum, as they say. But Matt Smith came up with a game sort of tangentially related to the main fantasy birding game that I really got into. And it involved me getting out and birding my neighborhood. Or rather, the woods behind my neighborhood that turned out to have A, a trail already cut by some mysterious and generous benefactor, and B, a whole lot of birds. The idea is this. There are teams, yard squads, if you will. And mine consisted of some ABA staff colleagues and a couple board members who work their immediate patches and submit their eBird checklists to a common account. There are sort of two competitions here. One restarts every two weeks like a relay leg. And the second is this cumulative list for the team. Teams go up against each other in some good-natured competition for a yet-to-be-determined prize that is something like pride or good sportsmanship or excellent birding or some other abstract concept. It doesn't really matter anyway. It got me out most days, beating this little patch of mine until I picked up something around 100 species for the spring. A little shy of where I'd normally be, but far more than I would have otherwise expected. And more... It invested me in the birding of my teammates, too. The checklists from Frank in Pittsburgh and Jeff and Liz from near Philly and Anne in Victoria, British Columbia and Ted in Boulder and Joanna in California's Bay Area and the dozens of birders who aren't part of the masked go-away birds, that is our team. Uh, They're on other teams like the social distancing flycatchers and the quarantines and the unsociable weavers. Anyway, the ABA team is not quite the birding juggernaut that some might have feared, but we do well enough, sitting pretty comfortably in the middle of the pack. But the important thing is that it feels like an island of normalcy in the sea of COVID-induced waves. So thank you to Matt Smith and all of the Yard Squad teams 
for making this spring a really, really fun one. I, I can't wait to keep going into the fall. If you're interested in playing along with us, you can get that information at fantasybirding.com slash yard squad. Squad up with us. We can't wait. American Birding Podcast is brought to you by the American Birding Association. Joining the ABA is a great way to support this podcast and the many resources that we make available to the birding community. You get magazines, you get discounts to our partners, and you get the knowledge that you are helping to build a better birding community in the ABA area and beyond. We even have e-memberships and discounted memberships for young birders. Get more information at aba.org slash join. I want to make a special shout out to Elizabeth Harding of Flagstaff, Arizona, Mark Mushkat of San Francisco, California, Susie Reddy of San Luis Obispo, California, Elena Casal of Sur Hadassah, Israel, Brian Sanborn and Sally Sovi of Corvallis, Oregon, William Johnson of Bloomfield Hills, Michigan, Darren Kirby of Penticton, British Columbia, and Joe Tuval of Reno, Nevada, all of whom recently joined the ABA or rejoined the ABA and noted the podcast as a reason. Thank you so much. Welcome or welcome back to the American Birding Association. Executive producer of the podcast and president of the ABA is Jeffrey Gordon. If you want to join the Fantasy Birding Yard Squad Challenge and need a team name, he would like to suggest the Golden Coronavirus Kinglets. Right, not bad. Technical production is by John Lowry, who would like to throw the Flatten the Curve Build Thrashers in as a potential name, just there for you to use if you like. Additional help comes from Greg Neese and David Hartley, who are putting together a team called the Northern SARS Wet Owls. You can find us online at aba.org, on Facebook at facebook.com slash birders, and on Twitter at aba. I got more for you. How about this? How about COVID's Corax? Hmm? The bald peepee eagles. The solitary antivirals. Virals? Antivirals? Eh, maybe not so great. How about this? The dry, shallow chuffs. The vaccine to go buntings. No shortage of names. We just need teams to fill all of them. Questions and comments can come to me at podcast.aba.org. I'm Nate Swick. Thanks for listening. Stay healthy, and I'll catch you next week. <laughs>